session with Dr. Farid Holakou. Good afternoon. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Dolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Student number to call in 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcasts on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get to the books of the week. The book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on Monday's show is On Disobedience by Eric Fromm, On Disobedience. Um, I actually had not seen this book, but came across it in a bookstore, and uh, I really like Eric Fromm and several of his books that I have read, so wanted to read this one. So On Disobedience by Eric Fromm is the book of the week that I'll discuss on Monday night's show. The book of the week from last week that I'll be talking about today is Touch Matters by Michael Benisi. Touch Matters, Handshakes, Hugs, and the New Science on How Touch Can Enhance Your Well-Being. And I uh, saw the, the book topic and found it interesting um, looking at the sensation or the sense of touch and how as he talks about in the book, we often don't think about it or really recognize the impact and influence it has in our life. And here, um, the, the author sharing his research and other people's research on this very important human sensation, touch, and what it means, um, uh, what, why we might enjoy it or why it might be helpful for us. And also, what I really appreciated is expressing the nuanced way that we relate to touch and we might relate to touch differently from one another. You know, often in these books or people when they're sharing messages about a certain topic, we, of course, want a take home message. Okay, is this good or bad or should I do this or do that? And I generally, when you hear me talk on a topic, like to share the more nuanced ways that we have to look at it, not in a black and white way, but recognize all the areas of gray. And I thought he did a great job in the book sharing so much of the research, what it's found, but also making it clear that let's say if we find that many people are touch deprived and want more touch, that doesn't mean everyone wants more touch. Or if you go touch someone, they're going to necessarily like that. Or you can say it's good for them. They might not want that because um, there's a lot more nuance there of how individuals might have differences in how much they like touch in different contexts and also um, depending on who you are that can make a big difference on how welcomed or unwelcomed that touch might be uh, also reading the book i didn't know you can maybe guess by the the last name banisi it wasn't so clear to me but that at, at one point in the book he described how he was a uh, talking about in groups and out groups how he's a liverpool football club supporter um and a British Iranian psychologist and so for me that was quite interesting because I've actually taken a liking to Liverpool Football Club and I'm an Iranian American psychologist so uh, I was really struck when I read that so I didn't know he was Iranian I don't know if both parents are Iranian or just um, one side but anyway that was an interesting moment and and it's actually funny because he was talking about in groups and out groups and I felt much more that he was part of my in group after reading that uh, sentence. Uh, but getting into the book and 
different things that he describes about touch. Um, one thing that was interesting is this way that we uh, even we might stroke a baby or we when we might intuitively interact with a baby or a loved one. He, he shares that later. There's a way that we might think even you might imagine it if I'm telling you that you are stroking or petting, you know, a loved one and how you would do that or a baby. And there's a type of frequency or way that we tend to do that almost intuitively or naturally that um, seems to have a reason behind it. And so the reason behind that is that we actually have these sensors in our body. These they're called CT fibers that actually respond positively. They're in the skin and they respond positively to this type of gentle skin stroking. So um, they can be called their C tactile afferents or C tactile fibers. Throughout the book, he will often just call them CT fibers. But we see that there's actually these fibers in the skin that respond to this type of stroking that seems to be intuitive, a way that we will touch someone when we're comforting them and we might touch a baby. And they've done research showing that, for example, when babies are um, stroked in this way, uh, they will experience less pain or show less withdrawal effects when they're about to experience uh, some kind of a painful medical procedure, like a pinprick blood test. So even though it was done by a brush, I believe, in this study, so it wasn't even actually a human hand stroking them, um, it made them feel, we can see, more comfortable or feel less pain. And this also mimics or resonates with other research on adults as well. Um, I've shared this study before, and he shared a few studies in the same vein of uh, individuals who are going to experience a painful shock, or I think it was like a painful laser or heat on their leg, uh, and it was done on women, and either they were alone, or they were holding the hand of a, a stranger, or someone they did not know, or holding the hand of a loved one, their husband. And so they saw their responses to this shock, or this uh, laser, the thing that was going to cause them pain, and they saw both in the brain and how they reacted less of a pain response. And so to me, this is a, a big theme of emotional support in general, and touch is one way we can show um, emotional support or our relationships and our connectedness in general, that it doesn't mean life becomes easy or something painful feels pleasant or is not painful at all, but it can make life more tolerable or less painful, which is very valuable. Sometimes we think if I'm going to give someone support, I want to make them feel good, which makes sense to have that desire and to come from that place. But most of the time when you're helping someone who's going through a difficult circumstance, especially a very difficult one, like let's say a death of a loved one, we can't expect that our support is going to make them feel good. But what we can do is make it a little bit less bad. And that's actually worth a lot. And people will say that when they went through a difficult period, it was still difficult, but the loved ones that gave them support, it really meant a lot and allowed for it to be more tolerable, less painful. And I think that's a, a theme of relationships in general, that we are there for one another, not to take away the pain completely or to make everything easy, but to make life less hard. And of course, makes other parts enjoyable as well, but the painful parts become less painful, even if the pain doesn't go away. Um, there was also parts on self-touch or how we experience touch internally, and I found one part fascinating about interoception, so how we experience um, things internally. You know, we often 
think of touch from the outside, but of course we have physical sensations from the inside, even um, the ways we touch ourselves or try to tickle yourself. Uh, there's, you know, it's hard to tickle yourself if you've ever tried. Sometimes if you have a very sensitive part of your body, you might get that ticklish feeling. But what does seem to happen when we're being tickled, uh, this is before the part I w wanted to share but came to mind, uh, is that the unpredictability of it. So when we're doing something ourselves, we can, our brain in a way can predict what is about to happen. And so that might counteract that feeling that comes when we get tickled. But when someone else is doing it, because we can't predict, we're not controlling the movement and the touch that we're going to experience, we can have that ticklish feeling. I, I do remember seeing research that suggested that individuals who have schizophrenia, sometimes they actually can tickle themselves, which lends some um, credence to the arguments or the the notion that some aspects of schizophrenia may be caused by sensory perceptions that are not uh, recognized as coming from within. Even sometimes when someone hears voices, it could be that there's uh, themselves talking or things they're thinking about, but they don't recognize it's coming from within themselves. So it sounds like there's a voice that's coming from the outside. So there could be some connection there. But here also uh, in the book, he shares research showing that, you know, when we think about um, interoception, it's how we experience our physical sensations. It could be things like your breathing or your heart rate and a lot of um, techniques and exercises of meditation and mindfulness actually try to help us become more self-aware of these things, more in touch. And people can have a difference in how connected they are to their bodies in this way, how connected they are to these senses and these signals that are happening within us. Uh, you know, things like trauma or uh, experiences that we have can make us more disconnected from our bodies. Or I think you can see at times people who are taught from a young age to disown their feelings and feelings, of course, we think of them emotionally, but there's also the physical component. Often you see that there can then be a move towards disconnecting from the physical as well. And of course, there's an interplay there. So not being as in touch with their feelings. And so he shared that there's research showing that although we might not think of interoception this or this connection to our physical body and physical sensations as so significant. Um, he, he shares here in a sentence that this seemingly mundane task of correctly perceiving our bodily signals is a surprisingly influential contributor to mental health. So it's actually um, contributes to our mental health. And then he goes on to say better self-awareness of our body's reactions can make us more mentally resilient. So when we're more aware and I can think of this as when you know something is going on within you, you can respond to it. But if you're disconnected from it, you won't even know. Uh, sometimes people, I think he shares it in the book, like they don't, they might not realize they're anxious till they see that they're tapping their leg or someone might po point it out to you. You know, you're really tapping your leg a lot. Maybe you're anxious or, or feeling nervous about something. But the more we're unaware of it, the less we can actually do something about it. And of course, the more we are aware of it, we can become aware of what's happening and possibly do something with it or do something about it. So if we have good interoception, it can be a contributor to our mental health. And of course, he shares on the flip side, interoception problems where a person struggles to notice their body's signals have been connected to mental health outcomes like low mood, eating disorders, and addiction. 
And so those are some pretty significant things. Low mood, maybe not as significant. Of course, it still can be depending on how severe it is, but eating disorders and addiction, those are of course significant uh, mental health concerns that can create physical concerns as well. And, you know, I read that and I was a bit, I want to say surprised. It made sense, but also to see how significant was that part surprised me, but it did make sense being that if you're not as connected to what you're you're feeling or what's going on inside of you, you might respond to it in ways that are not as healthy. Or for example, eating disorders, if you're not as connected to um, sensations of hunger and fullness and how that experience is going on within your body, you might respond by eating in ways that are not as healthy or try to deal with your emotions in that way without being in as touch with it. And addiction, the same types of things would be um, relevant. I've seen people myself, I recognize I don't think I have a great interoception uh, or interoceptive awareness. I've noticed that disconnection, especially when I'm noticing other people who might be more connected to how sleepy they are, let's say, or um, when they're hungry or when they're tired, they respond in ways that they're noticing their body's signals. And I see that in myself, it's something I've been trying to get more connected to because I think I'd learned to disown or disconnect from that in a way that made me focus, let's say, okay, well, it's time to do something. So I'm not sleepy or I'm not going to let myself feel sleepy rather than allowing myself to really be in touch with um, what I was going through in that sense. So that was an interesting paragraph for me, um, recognizing that something we might not think of as so significant or something that we think everyone is equal on Well, we're all in our own bodies. So we know what's going on, but that's not necessarily the case. Just like we might not be as in, t- as in touch with our feelings and what we're going through emotionally, uh, physically, we might not be as aware, and it's actually a, a significant contributor to our mental health. So uh, we are at a commercial break, and I do want to continue the discussion on the book, getting into some of the nuances of what we experience as individuals and what might be helpful or not helpful when it comes to touch. So after the break, I'll continue about Touch Matters by Michael Benisi. We'll be right back. Back, continuing the discussion on the book Touch Matters by Michael Benisi. Um, Dr. Benisi has done a lot of research on touch. He was part of a, a study that um, was called the Touch Test, or that was part of it, it was a touch test that had f- over or nearly 40,000 people worldwide participate in, in studies related to touch and understanding individual differences in touch. Of course, that timing, um, early 2020, is an interesting time because that was around the time when a lot of us, or all of us, pretty much had to experience way less touch than we were because of the the COVID-19 pandemic and lockdown restrictions that made us much less likely to touch one another or have individuals we touch, and especially seeing uh, many of our friends, family members, and loved ones because of that. Um, and he says that he, you know, they ask people, what are the three, what are the words that come to mind when you think of the word touch? And so you can think of that yourself. When you think of touch, what words come to mind? And he says three very common ones that they saw worldwide were comforting, warm, and love. I think when I did it, um, I had two of those three and I also had connection. I forgot which one I didn't. I think it was comforting, connection, and love came to my mind. But we tend to think of these types of words and he's seen that most people have these types of responses when they think of what of touch and what touch means to them. And so in this study and, and other studies, people have looked at, you know, different ways that, you know, the individuals might differ in touch. So he actually talks about 
touch personas that we can um, have different almost like personalities or uh, ways of being when it comes to touch. And so he includes this. It's not a really a full questionnaire because it's only eight questions. And he says, you know, you can't use this to really know, but it might give you an idea based on how you respond to some of these questions where you can answer anywhere from strongly agree to strongly disagree. Things like in an intimate relationship, I like to gently caress someone I care about. Um, or there's ones that are more about general friends. When I'm out with friends, I like to touch them. And so you can say anywhere from strongly to agree to strongly disagree. And so people will differ in how they feel about touch, how much they want it and, and enjoy it, how much they might be comfortable with it with different people. Someone might be very comfortable with touch with their um, romantic partner, but when it comes to friends or acquaintances, they might not like touch at all and not want that some people might be closed off to it in general uh, and so it's important to recognize that it's a very nuanced thing that we can't just you know sometimes we'll say someone is touchy-feely even i consider myself a touchy person or someone who likes physical affection and connection um, but it doesn't mean that i'll be that way in all situations all the time or that you can assume you know exactly what what someone wants and now that's another theme that came up throughout the book when we're trying to understand how to deal with touch with one another to not assume that we know um, what other people want based on either research or based on what we want something we can call the false consensus effect he talks about that in the book so we sometimes will think well because i like a hug right now the other person will like a hug right now and it might not be the case so there are these different types of tests or measures and he includes some resources in the book or places where you can find other resources to try to understand uh, yourself better. It might help you understand others better. As I was talking about interoception and self-awareness, um, with all of these things, we want to look at the self-awareness and understand ourselves better. How am I when it comes to touch? You know, when am I comfortable, not comfortable? And how might that relate to others and people around me? Um, and couples, this is something important to look at. You know, we talk about love languages and one of the love languages is touch, but Touch itself is something that we can try to understand better and make sure you understand your partner better. Some people, when they are stressed out, they want space. They actually don't want to be touched. They might feel more um, irritated by a touch. Others, when they're feeling stressed or down, they really want touch, and that gives them uh, the most comfort. Maybe it's touch without any words, or maybe it's touch with some comforting words. Whatever it might be, it can be important for us to first understand ourselves and then people that you are close to that you might interact with a lot especially a romantic partner understand their experience of touch and how they might um, want to be touched or not touched and in what types of circumstances and in what ways he does also talk about earlier in the book touch deprivation or touch hunger and how generally we do see uh, many people and this was even before the pandemic that might have been exacerbated but that they feel that they're not getting enough touch in their lives so we do see this type of a almost epidemic of people not getting enough touch and physical um, comfort affection that they would like and so again just hearing that doesn't mean if you go hug someone you're doing something good because people are touch deprived uh, they might not want more in general and they might not want that from you but it could be good to just be aware of this and also looking at yourself again do i feel like i am not getting enough touch there's also some interesting research looking at things like personality and how it can interact with how people like touch but also attachment styles and so um, people who are more having an anxious attachment style or have more anxious attachment styles 
will tend to like touch more. And that can make sense, the sense of a reassurance that is granted via touch. It's a very tactile, automatic one. It makes sense. Um, I think I have some more anxious tendencies in attachment style, and so that also can resonate with um, liking physical touch more or enjoying that. So um, people who are avoidant might actually want less of it. Now, this doesn't mean people who have an avoidant attachment style don't want touch at all. That's not the case. It's just that they might want less than someone who, let's say, is anxious or some other person. doesn't mean they don't get something from it. And that's something that could become a misunderstanding when you think they're avoidant, you think they don't want to touch, but doesn't mean they don't want any touch, but they might want it in some uh, different ways. And so again, it's why we want to be aware of the nuances there. We can't just assume if we know one characteristic of someone, then we know um, other things about them. Now, of course, uh, if we're talking about touch, and even when I bring that topic up, we can think of those things I was saying, you know, love, connection, warmth, and those things that sound nice. But of course, touch also comes with the themes of unwanted touch and how that can be so hurtful and harmful to individuals when they experience it. Whether we're talking about, let's say, something like physical abuse and pain being inflicted in that way to unwanted sexual touch that is uh, to different degrees um, uh, done to someone. And those are very important things to keep in mind and why it, throughout the book there is this theme of being aware that just because you're comfortable with a certain type of touch or you would want a certain type of touch doesn't mean the other person um, would want that. And so we would always want to be mindful and aware of does the person accept and consent to any type of touch that we do. Even when it comes to kids, you know, we we can actually teach our kids from a young age very young age, uh, that they are the ones who make the authority as far as what type of touch they experience. So if they don't want a hug or a kiss, we don't force them to hug or kiss someone or to accept a hug or a kiss or that they have to do that. And also showing them that that means, yeah, you have this, if you don't like the way someone is touching, you always have the right to let that person know and you don't have to accept that. And so that can help them recognize that I don't have to just give in to what the older person or the adult wants, let's say, in touching me, um, even if it's a family member, even if it's in public, and they'll internalize that to keep, hopefully keep that in mind in other circumstances as well, but that they have that body autonomy. And so we want to be mindful of this with our kids, with our loved ones, whoever it is, uh, because touch, if it's unwanted, can be very, very hurtful and very painful to the person experiencing it. And it becomes this very difficult topic because people are not sure, okay, well, what type of touch is okay and what is not okay? He shares things about, you know, even in sports teams and touch uh, and how there's this way of seeing that teams that do more high fives or just have more touch interactions, it often can lead to or seems to be associated with performing better. He shared about the Los Angeles Lakers. So he was really um, pulling on my heartstrings there, talking about the Lakers, my favorite basketball team, and also uh, soccer. And he talked about Jurgen Klopp, the coach of Liverpool, and how he has these Klopp hugs, and he hugs his, his, uh, the team members and kind of does this in a very strong embrace, and how there's signs that these things can actually lead to better teamwork and performance. But of course, again, this doesn't mean we can just touch anyone or that's always going to lead to better performance and teamwork. The other person has to want it. And so he does talk about touch in the workplace and how that can be a very uh, pun intended touchy subject because 
what's okay, what's not okay. And there's been history and continues to be um, individuals who have had a superior position using touch in inappropriate ways and making people feel uncomfortable and violating um, them in ways that are unacceptable and we can't tolerate. So these things become complicated because when something is abused, then of course it could lead to the reaction of, well, then we just eliminate it altogether. No one touch anyone. And I've seen this in schools where, uh, because there have been, of course, instances where people in power at schools have done things to children that's not appropriate, that all touch is eliminated or touch between kids is eliminated. They're not allowed to you know, hug or, or kiss, let alone maybe have a high five or have any kind of touch because of fears of where that can lead to. And I can understand that because it's just we have, we're trying to create a clear line because when we make it blurry, it can be tough to uh, maintain the ways we want things to be. But, you know, then we do lose something too and we can't touch at all and we create a certain sterile environment. I remember when I went to Costa Rica now a little while ago, um, but I was at a school there and I volunteered or worked at schools here in the United States where yeah, hugging and a touching was just something that wouldn't happen between teachers and, and students most of the time. But I went to Costa Rica and the kids would run up to you and just kiss you on the cheek and hug you. And it was very just accepted and part of the culture there. And there wasn't the sense that this is something you have to be afraid of or shy away from it. But for me still, I remember feeling this discomfort, especially at the beginning that, oh, this is, you know, not how you're supposed to interact with kids at a school. This kind of touch that um, might be more comfortable with, let's say, family members or friends and their kids that you know, you wouldn't do that at a school, but that there was very comfortable and okay. So, um, you know, he brings up these conversations about understanding touch. Can it be beneficial? in some ways, but of course we always have to be mindful of it has to be consensual and people have to be wanting it and okay with whatever that level of touch is. We can't just say, okay, touch seems to be good for teamwork. So everyone has to now give high fives or touch in this way. That's not going to work. Um, even there are some studies that show that, you know, he shares a study, for example, um, that when servers touched their patrons at a restaurant, let's say so, that the server comes back with the bill and does a light touch on the hand um, before handing the bill over to the customer, that those customers who were touched tipped more than those who were not touched. But then there was other research that showed that when the the people, the staff felt this pressure that they had to touch or were told they had to touch, sometimes that backfired because they felt more uncomfortable or they thought that the patron might feel uncomfortable about it. So they interacted with them less. So it didn't lead to increases in tipping. So Again, we don't have this clear relationship that touch will make people like you more. So if you do that, they're going to like you more. It's not that black and white. And also we can see when it's forced, that can lead to um, its own issues and problems or even backfire. And this reminds me of things that we see, um, you know, uh, quick lists or things online where it's saying, here's five ways to, you know, make your employees think you care about them or to make your partner feel like you're listening to them. And and we sometimes look for these types of correlations that, for example, okay, if you look into their eyes for four seconds and do this for two seconds, but I think what sometimes is missed that that's if it's being done in a genuine way and if it's done in a forced way or an artificial way, it likely 
uh, doesn't work. And so sometimes I think rather than saying, you know, five ways to make people think you care about them, uh, the alternative is to genuinely care about people and see if you can work on that deeper aspect of having care and compassion rather than trying to look like you care. And so with touch, it's a, a similar type of pattern where it's not just, okay, touch in this way and people will like you, um, but being aware that it's more nuanced than that. So, you know, there's a lot of this uh, discussions about different types of touch and how it might be beneficial and what types of environments it can be beneficial again each time with that nuance of it's not just a black and white type of thing also things related to touch in the future and different types of technologies those interesting um, things like you know fake or robot pets i should say not fake robot pets that might actually be helpful for people especially for people who might not be able to take care of a, a living pet it actually can have some benefits for them um, uh, you know, there is research showing that actually older adults can be touch deprived, but also young adults it could be because they're just out of college and out of the home and they might be more alone. Um, so could these types of technologies help individuals overcome some of this touch deprivation or touch hunger that they might have? So, yeah, I really did enjoy the book because it was, uh, you know, I had never read a book dedicated to touch one of our senses that we experience and the ways that it can um, relate to our relationships, how we relate in general, interoception, how we experience ourselves. Um, and as I said, I appreciated the way the research was presented as here are the findings, here's what we're seeing, but always we do have to be aware of each individual being different and we can't just make assumptions based on hearing a study saying that hugging feels this way for most people. It doesn't mean everyone does and even he shared about um, different nuances that people might experience and also individuals, for example, who are neurodivergent, let's say on the autism spectrum and how they might, some want more touch where some might be um, overwhelmed by certain types of touch. We always wanna be respectful that each individual might have a different um, want, desire, and, and uh, experience of touch. And that's more important than thinking we know the right way to touch everyone. So again, the book was Touch Matters by Michael Benisi. Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Studio number 310-441-0555. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Yes, uh, hello, good evening. Good evening, thanks for calling. Uh, uh, thank you, it's my uh, pleasure to talk to you. Actually, uh, um, I have a question, I think I raised the matters uh, uh, about the topic I'm gonna question, uh, was the entropy, uh, social, uh, uh, social entropy. That's what I discussed last night uh, with um, Dr. Holakuri and um, uh, he referred me to you that you may be more updated in the literature. Actually, um, I have seen a couple of papers here and there. I'm not a sociologist or neither a uh, psychologist or anything in this subject. I'm basically in, in the area of engineering, math, physics. Uh, and um, I have uh, written a couple of uh, papers on entropy since five, six years ago and in different applications, one of them which was more complicated even was in the, the uh, universe and expansion. Uh, but there, I knew that there are a lot of applications in, in different uh, ways in psychology, mm -hmm. sociology, and uh, 
life uh, in different planets, everything, there's a lot of things. But uh, the point that um, uh, I started to think about the application of uh, entropy on the uh, matter of uh, uh, present time that we have, we are dealing with masses um, uprising, I thought, oh, that's a good idea, uh, because basically any dynamic system can be governed by the uh, uh, by the uh, entropy in one way. So I started to give a couple of lectures in one of the radio, local radio, without preparing too much. I used my own knowledge, but I knew deeply the concepts of uh, entropy in overall in the universe. Uh, it looks like a lot of questions people ask, um, and uh, it's, I found it interesting if I learn more into the uh, uh, social science, uh, and then I went, I checked the literature on social science, I found a few papers, but unfortunately, I don't know which of these papers are relevant to the subject that I I want to study, and I'm a, I'm a beginner, basically, and I don't have deep knowledge of uh, um, social science at all, except the, a few uh, basic basic subjects like uh, Maslow's uh, hierarchy of needs, all kinds of things like this. Um, I'm looking for some help. If somebody if somebody has these references or can advise me, how can I connect? Uh, uh, in in a, in a sort of a structured way to write or to speak about the application of entropy in uh, in uprising which we are dealing with uh, with masses at this time. So if you need, uh, I'm 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 not sure how much you need uh, you know about the entropy, whether uh, you have seen that subject in, in social science. I just checked in here in the literature. I found that they mimitates or sometimes copied the idea uh, to uh, the idea of second law of thermodynamics into social science and uh, they started to discuss over there but it seems not very deep understanding hmm. um, the way that I want to write it and present it is that to connect deep knowledge of science into this uprising and see if we can predict anything, if we can at least uh, uh, definitely we cannot predict the time which, uh, which uh, the event is going to occur, but with, with the um, definition of entropy, maybe, maybe we can find how close we are to the situation which is uh, being collapsed. So I'm going to stop here and listen to what's your opinion sure well I mean I appreciate you calling and and it seems like you I know you wanted me to possibly give you some guidance but I think you're going to be the one uh, guiding uh, most of the way here because I do know about entropy as a the law of entropy in very basic ways I've actually seen um, researcher theories looking at entropy when it comes to consciousness and trying to understand human consciousness or of course life in general that there's the sense of things going towards disorder and so life is kind yeah. of staying That's in order and then you know everything moving towards death it's kind of losing it becomes more disordered and becomes back part of the um 
the universe right. or part, you know, the energy goes back in this. It's not as in this, let's say, in a packet type of a thing. Life is like a, a packet of, of energy or a packet of a biological packet. And then, it, it, you know, that can fall apart. So maybe, you know, and then looking at it from a sociological sociological perspective, I don't know very much about. I can get the comparisons there. And I think there's, of course, you know, we sometimes we talk about interdisciplinary, but then we might realize that. It, we call it interdisciplinary, but that was because we separated things to begin with, but maybe they were more connected than we thought. But looking at yeah, laws of that were used for physics, but then applying them, let's say, you know, to sociological um, situations. So, you know, that I think you said you have more expertise when it comes to engineering or physics from your perspective, just so I'm making sure the definitions, how would you define entropy? Oh, okay. Um, the way that I, I actually wrote a couple of papers and I have uh, sent it to Radio Hamro, your, your, to your father, lovely father, was, uh, he was uh, looking at that, but he acknowledges that, no, that that was off from his field of uh, interest and he said, I don't understand, therefore I did not uh, um, study that. However, the issue is that it's very, very interesting uh, the way that we look at as, as physicists or engineers. Uh, you know, I started with the subject that, uh, okay, the whole universe is in expansion with uh, the certain speed. In fact, the whole uh, system is a dynamical system. Anything within the system is dynamic as well. And uh, the other, way, the other uh, issue that we need to know is the, uh, or study is that the uh, matter of, uh, uh, matter of, um, uh, entropy or uh, in terms of energy, which uh, uh, it is assumed by the first law of the thermodynamic, which the whole energy of the world as well as the mass is fixed. Mm -hmm. What happened is that because of the dynamism of the, um, uh, uh, of the uh, uh, process, um, energies are being uh, changed to various ways. They are changes from mechanical to um, electrical from uh, heat, uh, 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 thermal energy to mechanical. So, in fact, any changes to the uh, uh, energy uh, shape is governed by entropy, and no matter which one is going to which one, always entropy uh, increases. And, of course, that's a matter of 400 years of uh, study by at least 10 scholars, scientists like uh, Leibniz, like uh, Glasius, like Jules, and all kinds of... After that, the other subjects, other people in different areas of research, like uh, psychology, uh, social science, and others, they learn that, oh, okay, they are related to the same... Their subject is related to, conceptually, to the same matter, because they are a part of the whole universe, which is itself... Uh, um, uh, is, is a dynamic system, and actually, my my third lecture uh, next Sunday on 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 the same issues, I'm going to talk about the uh, matter of uh, whether the um, dynamic system is going to converge to a result, which is exactly what we want to know in matter of using the um, uh, entropy. Whether uh, when it's happened, the uh, in fact the the system is going to collapse or is going to die. Um, I don't know if I if I explain to you enough to get some sort of background about the uh, 
the whole issue is that the matter of energy and energy is, is moving from here to there and, mm -hmm. and changes its, its face from different ways and no matter what no matter which way goes always um, they learn that but with 400 years of experience uh, and um, many research finally they found that there is a variable or there's a function called uh, they, they name it entropy which entropy is something is going always up 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 it's not linear like time or any other issues that uh, simply uh, by proportionality but this is a sort of complicated um, function uh, which the first version was quite uh, uh, you know uh, even uh, still is not resolved to me however the version that is now practical is the one which used in uh, in the statistical mechanics and this is the formula by uh, by Ludwig uh, Boltzmann where I yesterday talked a bit about that and I see that that article on on my computer which says uh, written by uh, by by Kenneth Bailey I don't know if you have uh, heard about him he's sure the person who in 1990s started to use the application of uh, of uh, entropy from physics into social science. And other people also applied the same formula. They wrote, they mentioned the formula in the, in the, uh, in the paper, but I don't understand that, or they may not clearly say how they, they, whether they use this formula or uh, any, anything um, practically useful to them. My intention is that to learn the part of uh, social science which can be connected to to the, um, the notion of uh, entropy in the in the form of uh, in the form that uh, presented by Ludwig uh, Boltzmann mm -hmm. and f find out when the when I mean when is not a matter of, or how it comes to the matter of uh, collapsing at which point the uh, uh, the entropy is maximized hmm. so yeah. um, I need a sort of backup or a knowledge in social science how I can connect them or some sort of interpretation to to present to my audience who are asking always so when how hmm. how it works so, um, well, in terms of physics, I can understand and I can explain, but people need to know in, in the way of common uh, practice of the daily life of the people in the society, how entropy works there. Yeah, so it's, it's, here, it yeah, seems very I complex. Uh, you know, I appreciate you, you sharing um, that information, and I, I, I think you were hoping I'd have something that would give you that social side of things and I can't say I, I have that as you were speaking I did also I was thinking of how would we understand entropy in a social sense is you know from energy or mass um, is mass the people or is that you know I don't know if that's a part of it and our power dynamics part of that or how do we you know I don't know what the the relevant terms or the equivalent terms are when we're looking at entropy and a social system and of course you know there's the system with which sometimes we look at a self-containing or self 
uh, self system, but of course there's outside influences as well. So uh, I don't know how that also plays a part in understanding these um, these dynamics. It seems to I can in a very theoretical way it can make sense to me or I'm making some sense of it. But as far as getting into the details of how we would be able to measure or predict something in Iran, I I know I'm very far from having any way of making that connection. Um, I think there likely can be one, but I wouldn't have the available knowledge to make that type of a connection and understanding. I think it's something relevant, worth researching and understanding better, but I don't have that um, understanding Mm -hmm. myself. I think that's a, when I presented people say, oh, that's a new subject, and they found it very interesting, yeah. and they put me in the corner to um, <laughs> bring more materials into that. That's why I have to study that. And when, when I when I checked the literature on social science, I found the, the first one by Kenneth Bailey in 1990s. However, I didn't have access to the uh, details of the paper article because mm-hmm. they, they're asking for 400 uh, I mean for the US dollar for the paper and I'm not sure if it's going to be really useful to pay for that As I thought maybe um, people in the area of uh, social science they might have this or better better paper um, to um, to back me up and give me a bit more um, details uh, to mm-hmm. to turn the light on to me to be able to connect it to the um, um, uh, definition of my entropy. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I don't. As I said, I don't. I maybe I've heard the name. I wasn't familiar when you said it, and, and I don't know if I've seen his work. Uh, it would be new to me, and I know, unfortunately, uh, oftentimes when you want to read articles that are in journals or certain publications, you either have to be part of an institution or pay uh, a certain amount to have access to them. Some people are pushing to. Uh, remove all those paywalls because I think it's interfering with the sharing of information and people learning, which is right. something that science is supposed to promote. It's it's interfering with that process. So um, unfortunately, that still is the case. I I didn't see the emails that you mentioned. I can see if I can ask where you know they are, so I could take a look at that in, information myself. But I didn't see those um, you know reports. And what I'm hearing from you, something in a different way. I experience you know people ask questions and it encourages you to to. To learn more as the person that's trying to teach them um, because of those questions and then you learn in that process so I can see that you're part right. of that journey too where you've learned a lot and you're sharing that but then seeing where people's questions are guiding you to, to learn more uh, as I said I wish I could have given you more information it seems like you really today you shared information with me but I was not able able to provide you with with much if there's anything you'd like to continue discussing before we wrap up please let me know I don't know if there's any other thought or question or I even something you wanted to share I appreciate your your care the, uh, let me just uh, tell you one more thing regarding sure. the touch that you were explaining about that book uh, mm-hmm. uh, that was interesting um, I had a question to, to ask we don't have to answer that question right now you might in your free time uh, during the uh, your show you might uh, explain that but the, the point was that uh, I wanted to know whether there is any way that some, let's go to the party and there are a lot of people there mm-hmm. and um, we, um, we, are, we, are, we are planning to hug each other as a matter of uh, closeness, friend, friendship or whatever reason, how we can um, see the behavior of the 
the person whom we are going to hug, whether he or she is happy or not, that is the question that I might ask. I don't know if the question being relevant to this to the topic that you Oh, presented. absolutely. Yeah. No, yeah. And so I, I don't want to take you know, your time. No, no, no. That's, I mean, a, rel- a very relevant question. In a way, I mentioned it or brought it up that, you know, in the book he was sharing that, you know, we look at these generalizations or the research is showing us, let's say, men prefer this, women prefer this, or most people are touch deprived or whatever it might be. But then we always want to make sure when you're in, interacting with an individual, we see that individual as a unique person who might differ from whatever the norms or the, you know, some statistics tell us. So, you know, sometimes we could just ask someone very flat out, oh, I was wanted to give a hug or are you okay with a hug? Sometimes people actually do verbalize that, say, hey, are you you okay with a hug? And, you know, some people say, oh, yeah, I'm a hugger and they'll give a hug back and they feel fine. Or someone might say, I prefer not, or they might want a handshake or no touch at all. So I think checking in in general is a, is a good starting point. Um, once you, and then, you know, even he talked about in the book, you might even know someone and you usually give them a hug and sometimes they might not want it. And it doesn't mean maybe every time, if it's a friend of yours, you're going to ask them every single time, but we might notice certain things that how are they reacting to it? Uh, so I was talking about the self-awareness, but of course we want to have the awareness of those we're interacting with and we might pick up on something but as much as possible we want to not assume we know what they want or don't want and I think whenever possible ask them so they can let us know that's great thank you that's yeah. that's good I'm quite pleased to uh, have a chat with you at uh, the first Likewise. time and uh, hopefully we can talk to each other another time about I hope so topics. yes but, uh, I will I will take a look I'm, I'm gonna ask uh, I think if you send it to the the general radio email i could probably ask right. you could say your name either now or off the air you can let me know just so i can make sure to look for it i think uh, the uh, the lady i think uh, who, who picked up the phone she's uh, i don't forget her name is farhude farhude yes yes sorry um, she knows me as soon as i pick up the phone i start the first word she knows who, okay. who am i and she knows my my articles on, on uh, entropy and the okay uh, Universe expansion. So I'll ask. Issue. Yeah, I'll I'll ask so that I can get it. I'll have it emailed to me so I can take a look at those and then anything you can send it to me. I really I appreciate that because you sure. know me myself as a researcher, you know I I I love to expand my knowledge. You know we a lot of mat- materials in ma- mathematics, physics are applicable to different uh, use in in mm-hmm. various environments and. That's I love to see if I can merge yeah. the uh, uh, social science in deeply to the mathematics. Although I can see that people refer to the second law of thermodynamics or or the or the uh, equations of uh, of uh, entropy from Boltzmann, but nobody applied them practically and get some number out and say, okay, this is what is happening. They always present the formula. And uh, this, they talk about the general general things, and people yeah. want specific answer for that. That's you what I'm looking for. Yeah, one. You know, I was mentioning consciousness, and yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree that we're these. You know, uh, math, physics, they, um, they often their theories will apply to other areas that we might not think they would. And you know, I think it was, it's Carl Friston. 
who who I think he has something called the free energy principle related to yeah. consciousness and and the brain and entropy. So that's more psychology than sociology, but just a name that um, came to mind related to that topic. But I'll make sure to, to take a look at what you have sent or have worked on, and uh, I hope we can stay in touch. Oh, I appreciate it. I appreciate that. Actually, I wrote it in Farsi. I don't know if you can read Farsi. Oh, I'm, I might have to use some Google Translate, so I'll, <laughs> I'll work on it or I'll get some help. To The articles are in Farsi or the email is in Farsi? Um, Articles for ah, okay. That'll be harder for me. I'll, I'll have to see what I could figure out with those. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I have um, yeah, one of my neighbors. Actually, I'm in the environment of university professors, uh, kind of educated people. And I met um, one of the senior uh, psychologists. I don't know. He's a psychiatrist uh, who, who works at the uh, teaching at the University of Ottawa here. And he knows the concept of... Uh, Entropy. Anytime I approach him, he says that in some cases it's it's not valid hundred percent, and he hesitates to talk to mm. me about that. Possibly he knows that uh, I'm a mathematician. I'm going to bug him too much, <laughs> but he always uh, tries to escape from me uh, as soon as I I go and ask him. Oh, okay, what about entropy in in um, psychology? <laughs> so. Yeah, I think well, I think it's it's a harder, as I said, the uh, Carl Friston. I think his work is very much relevant to entropy. And uh, I read a book by Mark Solms. I think um, called the Hidden Spring, and this concept of entropy was brought up in understanding human consciousness. That's a book you can check out. Yeah. The Hidden Spring by Mark Solms. S O L M S. Um, I really enjoyed that book in general, but I remember that that's where I learned about this topic of entropy in relationship to consciousness. I appreciate it. if you uh, if you look at my email and sure. any information that you have it. It's great. You you are a young uh, you know educated person. I'm a senior. I'm the age of almost your father too. I'm still interested too much to. Uh, that's to, good uh, curiosity. Yeah, curiosity keeps us all young. I think next so. Generation. Yeah. Now I was gonna say curiosity. I think keeps us all young. So I I try to keep a curious mind as well. But I'll take a look at your email and I'll send you um, some things that I think might be relevant. I appreciate. It's very very interesting to talk to you, and I enjoyed that by all kinds of uh, discussion that we had. Hopefully, we can someday we can see each other talk directly that would be great i look forward to it thank you for your call and we'll be in touch thank you all right let's go to a commercial break we'll be right back welcome back let's go to another caller radio hamra you're on the air hello hello radio hamra you're on the air Hi, Dr. Farid Hulakui. Sorry, I was on mute. That's okay. Thanks for calling. Sure. Thanks for taking my call. Um, my question is about um, relating differently to the same experience when experiencing that in different languages. Mm -hmm. And I listed um, five different angles to explore this. Okay. Um, I want to start with the most concrete one. So let me, before uh, you before you get into those examples, if I can make sure or clarify. So you're saying, um, you're talking about how experiencing something 
in a different language can make the experience different or how you... Correct. Okay. And maybe your examples will make it even more clear. So right. yeah, let's go ahead. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and I have, um, again, I, I think the first angle, which is this concrete example, makes it a little bit clearer. And I really look forward to, your, to hearing your insights. Um, so the example is something that I wrote um, about your father, Dr. Freyhan Kolakui. So I wrote it in English and Persian, and when I read that, the Persian, um, Persian version is symbolic, it's abstract, it um, has this deep understanding that kind of reson resonates with me like a torch. Mm -hmm. where the English version is superficial, it's cliché, it's disconnected. Um, so if you allow me, I read, it's just one sentence. Sure. I read the English one first and then the Persian one. Okay. And then you see how um, those characteristics come through. Uh, Dr. Farhan Kolakui is a rare drop of water in the ocean of life who has worked to help us become and continue as a beautiful wave. Um, hmm. So now, if you allow me, I read the Persian version. Sure. Um, so now going back to how I experienced my own writing, um, I experienced a totally different um, existence through the Persian one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And mm -hmm, go ahead. Uh, I stop before. No, no. I mean, I did. I yeah. It just um, yeah. This is you know. So I'm I'm glad you explained, especially like now we're looking at language and how we experience the language, and so se several different uh, themes or topics already come to my mind. Um, one is that we realize that although we, we think of language as just, it's just like two different things doing the exact same thing, we actually do recognize that languages have more, there's almost a flavor to them that's not just, okay, words to words. They have a different feeling to them for the same words at times or the ways they describe words. So, um, the ways that we use, the different languages that we use can give a very different feeling or meaning to what seems like the same things. So what you're saying does make sense. And this is why actually, this is another thing I was gonna bring up. Translation, sometimes we think, well, translation means I take this word and then I find the equivalent word in the new language and I make the new sentence. But we see that when you actually do that with most translations, it really you know, falls apart and doesn't carry the same meaning or really what we find is that if it's especially has an emotional depth, you can never capture or you won't capture the same feeling in the new language. And so this is why when we read a translation of a book, you know, oftentimes people will say, well, if you read in the original French or the original Spanish or whatever language the author wrote it in, the experience is very different than when you read the translations and also why different translations can give people different feelings. So um, I've been reading Marcel Proust's book In Search of Lost Time, and I'm uh, going to read the seventh and last volume. And, you know, there's been various translations, and I read people's describing these different translations and how they 
can feel very different. So um, what we see is that language, as much as we think of them as these things, that they're all the same, but, you know, they're the same thing, but just in different languages, it's not really the case. Uh, with some words, yes, maybe some words feel easier to translate. Even there, at times, we can see cultural influences or different things that influence it. For example, uh, animals for in, in Persian language. Sometimes I think it's almost funny that we see, um, I don't think Persians in general, we have a very good affinity to animals. Oftentimes we can see them very poorly. And maybe this is reflected in the ways we've named animals, where oftentimes different animals don't even have a unique name, or we just combine two other animals to name a new animal, almost in this way of showing that it's not that unique of an entity, it's just a combination of things. And then, of course, the way that we call that animal, for example, khargush uh, would be rabbit, right? The fact that it has gush in it, ear, I think, I believe it comes from ear, might affect how when you hear that word, you associate it with other things than if you say rabbit in English, which doesn't have that word in it, you know? So we see that our experience of language is not just this thing where it's a one-to-one -one type of a thing. There's more nuance and flavors in it. So what you're experiencing there, um, a few things happened. I think one was, I don't know how literal the translation was. Uh, and because of that, we talk about things getting lost in translation, that if you have a saying that makes sense in Persian, it might not make sense in English and vice versa. So it might be very meaningful in Persian. And then you say it in English, it feels flat or you said it feels cliched. So there could be um, some of that going on. But also you said it with a certain feeling in Persian. And we would have to imagine that when you put it into English, it's not going to necessarily have that feeling because it didn't come from that same place, if that makes sense. So uh, I think what you're saying totally makes sense. And I, I shared a lot there, but I wanted to hear your thoughts on what, what I've brought up so far related to your own experience. Um, yes, thank you. In fact, uh, the association, that was the second item on my list um, that has to do with uh, experiences in childhood and translation has to do with the third item on my list that has to do with when I immigrated about almost 40 years ago and hmm. from one country to another had to go through this experience of learning different languages so I start with the Let me, one well I'm so before you start I, unfortunately I'll stop you just because we're at a commercial break but I want us to continue and to give you time to really get into those different experiences and we can get talk more about these um, different connections between languages and what we feel and experiences I I'm enjoying uh, the conversation so let's talk after the break okay great thank you all right we'll be right back welcome back before the break we're with a caller let's go back to them now caller are you still there yes I'm here all thank right you. thank you so um, I think in the first segment you'd shared that you have I think five examples and we went over that first one looking at language and how it could make um, create different experiences based on what language we are experiencing it and I think few of them you said also about your own personal experiences so go ahead um, let me know what was the next one you had on your list mm -hmm. the second example refers to the translation aspect of this that you mentioned mm -hmm. uh, when I First, I was in Iran until my early 20s, and then I went to Germany and then came to U.S. So when I was in Germany, 
it was the first second language I was learning, although I knew German before going there, I had learned it. But the actual experience of um, being submerged in the language for me was as if I'm experiencing everything dynamically in that language. For example, walking, it wasn't like my brain is trying to find the word Adam Bezan in, in uh, German. It was really like every step I was taking, my brain was trying to take that visual and put it into a sentence. So mm. I felt my experience of learning language was different when I was talking to other people because they always talked about I'm translating but I didn't feel what I'm doing was translating. Um, I didn't have that level of intense experience when I came to U.S. and I had to submerge myself in English because mainly I was loaded with a lot of studies and it has to be quick and <laughs> I didn't have enough as much time to experience. So I stopped here before I move on. Well, that, yeah, that's interesting. You know, we, we talk about um, there's different types of, uh, of memory and there's different types of things we describe. And sometimes it's words describing things that are happening, but sometimes it's procedural, like what we're experiencing. And it seems like when you're in Germany, you were also trying to translate what you were experiencing into German, not just what, let's say, you were saying or just even the word walking. Each step was being uh, translated. And, you know, what's thinking about translation in general and what you shared in the last segment, I was thinking of how we tend to think of translation mean meaning translate the words from one language to other. But really what we're trying to do is translate into the new language, but hold on to the feeling the way that, especially when you're talking about something that's more poetic or artistic and even like what you were sharing about that line you wrote about my father, what was more important than just the words being the same was the feeling being the same, you know? And that could be harder to translate because it's how do you recreate that in the new language and of course, there's going to be subjectivity there, and that's why people say translation is an art. It's not just find the words, and if you know the language, you can translate. It's more to it than that, because you want to hold on to that feeling, because that's really what you want to be translated, not just, okay, if you had waves in this one, make sure waves is the same you know, place in this sentence. It's more the feeling being maintained. But that's interesting to hear you, and, and I, I haven't heard everyone experience it that way when they're learning a new language. It seems like you were really trying to immerse yourself so much that you were almost trying to, to experience life in German, not just um, use the words when the time came to talk or speak in German. You were trying to make your experience internally as German as you could. Exactly. You said that so beautifully. I totally relate to that. Um, thank you. Sure. Now, the, the next one is when you, is about the, your reference to association. Mm -hmm. I think um, for the association part, I have this example that um, as I was growing up, my way of again, experiencing or at least trying to present the, my experience, even at early age, was very abstract, um, not very concrete. Uh, and I always got this feedback from people who knew me or didn't know me, um, what are you talking about? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, I always had to go fill in the details of what I was talking about, where 
it was very difficult for me to do um, because the way I was talking about it was very fast. But when I was trying to fill the details, um, was going slower and my brain was getting um, not kind of overly burdened um, to the hmm. point of uh, sometimes I had this feedback that you can't even speak right. right? Huh. <laughs> so all these feedback I got gave me this association, uh, created this association in my mind that even sharing um, the things that I I use as symbolic presentation of what's happening, for example, my sentence about your father, um, is um, not okay. Um, so hmm. when I was younger, it made a huge difference because I had the urge to share and uh, get encouragement. Uh, I mean, I, I grew out of that, like, I don't even share. <laughs> I don't need anybody's encouragement. It would be nice, but it doesn't really play a big role. Um, but I thought it's a good example mm -hmm. to clarify um, my experience about languages and mainly communication with people through this conversation with you, Doctor. Hmm. Yeah. You know, a few things came to my mind um, there. You know, one was that when we think, well, what is language? It's used use the word symbolic. Yeah, we use these, uh, and now when we speak, it's like a sound we make, but, um, you know, these symbols to represent something else. And, of course, anytime we use a symbol, it's going to be imperfect. It can't perfectly represent that. And language is incredible obviously you know we can even see in human evolution the ways are even our throat is shaped and things like that it seems that it's because we want to be able to produce more sound so for example the uh, humans as an adult um, the reason why we can't drink water laying down or it's hard for us to do that is because uh, you could have water go into your breathing pipe whereas apes and even some of our close relatives they don't have that problem or babies don't that's why a baby can drink milk and be laying down is that their esophagus and i don't know the exact details but things haven't moved in a way yet so that they can drink that way but because of the shape of our our mouth and our throat and all of that um, physiology we can create more sounds which shows that uh, i think i don't know if it was darwin but someone was saying that it shows how important language was that we're almost willing to risk being able to choke at any moment on things we're eating or drinking enabled to be able to talk more or to be able to create more sound so language is incredible and allows for us to connect and and do so much but of course it's still imperfect and as you were speaking i was actually thinking when we're talking about translation there's even almost a more primary form of translation which is taking whatever we're thinking or feeling and putting it into words to then express it if we're trying to share it with someone that's almost the first uh, level of translation is to take our thoughts feelings whatever it is and to put it into words to then express that to someone else and to hope that they can then internalize what was going on within us and there's going to be of course imperfections and that it's never going to be a perfect representation that they'll take um, but there is that first level and so you were saying your way of at times translating into words what you were thinking did not resonate with other people now it could have been even you were thinking a bit differently from them too so they couldn't quite get it but there's also that layer of putting whatever you're thinking or feeling into words to share it which even maybe is the first 
translation that happens. We might not even think about it as translation, but the first one that we have to experience. Uh, do I have more time? Yes, yes. For other sure. <laughs> Thank you, Doctor. This is very helpful to me. Um, so the next one, um, I like to talk about um, um, what I have done because, as you can imagine, this um, way of being has created like a split in my mind <laughs> where there is restlessness sometimes and there is um, a lot of um, hope at other times and so my solution has been and this is really strange but um, is this what I call saturation and relief so what I have done is like right now I don't really remember German that well to have a need to even do that but for English and Persian, I have been have submerged myself in my English reading, writing, talking for a while to the point of completely cutting out the Farsi. And then once that became came to a balanced state, I submerged myself in Farsi, like always listening to Farsi music talks, and so I, I. I think that's the solution I have come up with to bring these different levels of understanding to some equilibrium where you're kind of not torn out between these experiences. Does that make sense? You know, I'm not sure if I've, I fully got it. it. The sense I got was you were saying um, how much you saturate yourself in a different language. You try to balance them so that you can think in both languages or express yourself in both languages. Is that... What you meant, both English and, and Persian, you might at times saturate yourself to different ones to create some kind of balance within you? Yes, and the balance is uh, for the feelings, mainly, as you were saying earlier. Mm -hmm. Like the same experience, um, it becomes frustrating when you cannot uh, feel it or comprehend mm -hmm. it deeply. So you submerge yourself in the other language until you come to a point of relief, like a mm. spring, right? Mm -hmm. Like you pull it and then you release it so that it goes back to the state of, oh, I'm all right with the feelings that I have about this experience because maybe it was in English and I didn't have the right associations to it and it created some... Um, on, some uneasing mm -hmm. does that make sense it, it does skip this. no no it does so you know there's a lot of research that that shows that when you can more accurately name your feeling or your emotion it's easier for you to work through it or deal with it or let go of it and then there's a a, a concept of emotional granularity meaning that getting even more detailed and trying to understand a feeling so you know, we might just think, okay, there's mad, but then within being angry, there's frustration, there's irritation, there's resentment, there's a whole bunch of, you know, the way I th like to think of it is like there's primary colors, these main emotions, but really just like in colors, there's infinite colors when you combine them in different ways. So it's not just there's red, blue, green, yellow, and, you know, a few colors, there's infinite colors in between. So same with our emotions. It's not just there's anger, happiness, you know, fear, 
discussed and these, you know, few primary emotions, really there's infinite. And so at any moment, what you're feeling is going to be more granular, more detailed than just some general good, bad, happy, sad. And the more we can name that accurately, um, it does seem that we feel better. And this is that sense of being understood by someone or being understood by ourselves, having great value. And so we also see going back to this language that in some languages, there are words for feelings that there aren't in other languages. And people actually, it's a, people find this quite fascinating. You can look up different ones like, oh yeah, I felt that feeling, but we don't have a word for that in English or in Persian. But in, let's say German, there's a specific word for it, or in, in Danish, there's a specific word for it. And so you then see that they might communicate that in a way and might tap into that more easily because there's a word for it that they use um, regularly. And so that makes it easier to come to mind and easier to then understand their own experience. So what you're saying totally makes sense. And so I'm, I'm actually, when you were speaking, I also thought of how uh, personally for me, my English is much better than my Persian, especially when it comes to these types of details of emotional words. I know the more generals in Persian, but in English, I have much more of that granularity of different details. And so if I try to express my feelings uh, in Persian, I'll have a lot harder time or I'll, I'll feel probably that frustration you were talking about because it'll feel a bit stuck. Again, that translation from what's within me into the language will, will have a barrier to then even share that with someone else or even to experience in myself. But if I go to English, I might be able to find a word that feels more like my feeling and that, will, that resonance uh, feels good, it has some kind of a a good feeling. So what you're saying totally makes sense. Great. Uh, thank you. Sure. I have uh, the next item I wrote here is the impact this makes on my learning as well as um, communication with other people. Mm -hmm. In terms of learning, especially my technical learning, um, which is not as um, feeling um, mm -hmm. intense because I'm in technical field. Um, so when I I have a completely different level of relating to the content. Um, although most of my technical studies has been in English, uh, I still um, feel that, not feel, but I experience that I don't get the content visually or because I'm a very visual and auditory learner or I cannot really reproduce it um, um, as, as well as mm -hmm. if I were to have a great speaker in person explain this to me. Um, so this... Um, this experience of, um, I guess, limitation in language comprehension uh, or usage um, is impacting my technical learning. I'm okay with non-technical books. I actually enjoy them. Um, I prefer to read them those in English, but um, that's how I mm -hmm. experience things in the technical field. Does that yeah, make sense? It, technical field it is does. Yeah. Symbolic? Yeah. I mean, that, it, that, that was interesting. You pointed that out yourself that it's less about uh, emotion when it's technical, but it shows that, you know, even still language is always something we, I, I think we feel it much more than we think in general, we feel things. We, we, 
think of things as like, okay, just an idea, but even idea has a feeling with it. That's why something, it can feel right, even though we don't want to just stop there. There's something you say, oh, that feels right. And then you think about it more and might see that it's not totally right. Or you might realize even more deeply why it is correct. Um, so there are feelings always involved there. And, and language, when it's our second language, it always takes a bit more effort when it's not our mother tongue or the one we're most comfortable in. So I could see how that would also interfere where it just everything will be a little bit harder when it's in English for you to kind of take it in. So it might be easier to learn in Persian, even if it's technical and doesn't have a, uh, it's not just based on feeling, it's based on something that seems like it's more about technical and not emotions. That would make sense to me. Um, you know, I'm looking at the time and I'm supposed to go to a commercial break, but I think you, did you have one last one? And I, we yeah. could do that one and then um, we'll wrap up. But yeah, go ahead. Oh, I can't? Yeah. Okay. okay. Um, so finally, the last one is what to do. I guess uh, you, you did share a lot of insights about what to do, but uh, practically what to do and also with that question is this a psychological problem i have or is it an is it an okay experience or in general what to do about this mostly so that when someone says i have no idea you're talking what you're talking about take it as face value rather than re-experiencing my own frustrations what someone else is telling me yeah you know uh, you know as is often the case with these things what you shared much of it is a human experience that almost every human will experience and also some of it was something more um, unique to you that not everyone will experience but i'm sure many others will have a similar experience to you but it might be less universal so some of those things about language and feeling to me that's a human type of a thing some of those things you were sharing about how you might think of things and express things and sometimes people won't get you or you you know they feel like they can't understand you that's something that you could also look at okay are there some themes it seemed like you were aware of them is it you're being uh, you know too abstract or sometimes we think the other person knows some of the background knowledge we have you know we we call it the curse of knowledge so we start talking about a topic and because we know it so well, we think they know some of those basic parts, but they might not. So is there things you're assuming your listener knows, but you're not taking into account where they're coming from? You know, what is it that they're not getting? So that could be something you could look at is when you're talking with someone and they're not getting you, not just, of course, it's, it's frustrating to not be heard and understood, but trying to see where is that disconnect? Is it... Um, you're, you know, saying it in a way that makes sense to you, but not to them. Are you assuming they know things that they might not know that will be important? It's kind of like, you know, I'm sitting here in the studio and I say, oh, look at that thing over there, but you can't see what I'm pointing at. And I might get frustrated. I'm like, why don't you, I'm pointing at it. It's right here, but you don't have that knowledge of what I'm seeing, or you can't see what I'm looking at. So maybe there's ways that you are assuming and don't even realize that the person knows something that they don't know and, or an understanding that they don't know. Um, it'll be important to try to look at what is, what, where is that disconnect? What is going on there? And each of us have different ways that we might, you know, we talk about communication skills, like a general thing, but there's usually things that we're better at and things that we're not as good at. And we want to understand that our personal profile when it comes to that. So I can tell you're a very reflective person and have done a lot of thinking about these things. So I'm sure you've done some of that, a lot of that. But it might be good to do even more trying to get what is it if people that you're closer with, maybe they can tell you, it seems like this is what's happening and you might get more insight into what is leading to that disconnect. 
Um, but there will always be imperfections in how we communicate too. So not being so hard on yourself or the other person if they're not getting you, that just these things can come up because language is incredible, but it's still going to be an imperfect mode of communication. Thank you so much, Dr. Farid Olakui. I feel so much smarter. (laughs) (laughs) I do too. You taught me a lot. I appreciate you sharing your insights and uh, and definitely a lot to think about. And actually in the next segment, I might follow up on some of these thoughts that came up in this conversation. So thank you for your call. Great. Thank you so much. All right. You too. Let's go into our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. In the previous segment... Uh, talk to the caller looking at language and, and different languages, different experiences and emotions. And um, it made me think of just how we experience things like language and other things where we feel something so instantly that it makes it feel like something is inherent about that thing. But we miss that it's actually a social construction or something that we've created. So what do I mean by that? And actually, I might touch on other uh, things that we talk about as social constructs like money or race and how even if we call them social constructs, sometimes people take that to mean, oh, does it mean it's meaningless or it doesn't have any meaning? No, it definitely has huge meaning in our world or the socially constructed world. But it means that we can recognize that it doesn't mean something is inherently valuable or has that feeling it's something about what we've created so what do i mean by that so if i say certain words uh, to talk about the book today i talked about touch what feelings does that bring up for you so you hear that word touch and some feelings come up for you some associated words might come up for you and it feels very automatic now i might say think of those three words and so it might make that part more effort uh, driven but just hearing that word touch you have a feeling or if i say hate you have certain feelings love some feelings will come up if i say certain names for some of you i'll say certain names you'll have no feelings but if you have let's say a son or a daughter with that name and i say that name you're going to feel a lot with that same word or that name so what we recognize is that words themselves don't have value emotionally or otherwise but they are gaining value or we create that value socially together, but then also you have your unique experience as well. So as I was saying, love for most people might bring up certain things. Marriage might bring up certain things for lots of people. If you just went through a divorce, the word marriage might have different things than if you just got married and you're very happy about it. It's that same word. And so this also happens where if I say a bad word, you feel something, right? Now, if I tell you for example, two words in a language you don't know and say, how do you feel? You're going to say nothing. Whereas people of that language, if one of them is a bad word and one is a good word, they're going to feel different things. And it's so automatic that it makes us think, well, no, it's something in that word. So if I say like love, you're like, oh, love, it's just this wonderful word. That's why it feels this way. But if someone has never spoken English or heard English and hears love and also hears hate, they won't have those feelings that you have when you hear those two different words because they haven't had that experience of associating that word with those different experiences, feelings, and what it actually means. And the same thing happens with things like race, where we have an initial reaction. You might have one to people from different backgrounds or races or different types of groups, and it makes you think it has to be something inherent because I felt it as soon as I 
saw the person or as soon as I've experienced something, but that doesn't mean that it's something inherent, just like these words don't have to have something inherent in them. And so I bring this up as a reminder of how much of our world that we think we're responding to because it's something deep and something in the nature of that thing. It's actually more about the social experience of whatever that thing is and to have mindfulness of that. Um, people might think, okay, men should do this and women should do this. And no, it's because it's natural and it has to be something deeper. And I'm not saying there's going to be no differences between men and women. There are. But there's ways that we might associate, okay, a man should do this or never do this, and a woman should do this or never do that. Something like crying. Um, you know, in American culture, especially for a man to cry, often it could be looked at as weak or unmanly or someone who you can't rely on. But if you look historically, there was often this sense that a man should cry at the right things, the things that are meaningful or to weep about something that uh, matters is actually a sign of strength, something that I would actually agree with, not just for men, but people in general. But your reaction might be very uh, clear about that. Or even when we talk, I mentioned men and women, the color blue and the color pink. For most people now, it's very clearly that you know blue is for boy and pink is for girl. But that wasn't always the case. It was actually reversed uh, some time ago. And so that association would happen automatically for people the other way. It doesn't mean blue is more boyish and pink is more girlish. It's just that we've made those connections and associations. And so this allows us to be aware that although we might feel something very automatically, very quickly, very deeply, and because of that, it makes us think it must be purely about the thing and not emotions or not anything that we're um, making judgments about or anything outside of the value inherent to those things, that this is not the case, even something like money. When you hear you've made more money or you have more money or someone made this much money, you're going to have an emotional reaction to it. Or if you see cash, if you see actual money, you'll have a reaction to that. But that paper itself is not inherently something valuable. It's that we've given it value. Even that's why we've, you can see that the value of a currency can change how much it's actually worth. You know, and we even talk about confidence in the U.S. dollar or confidence in this thing. We can see that's an emotional thing. It's something that we've created. And of course, I, I say it's an emotional thing. It's of course could be related to other things that might be real and things that happen. But it's not just based on something real or inherent value. It's a feeling that we attach that value towards or the way it gets value is related to something that we're socially constructing and creating. Um, and this to me can be powerful because of our experience day to day of things feeling so real or being so meaningful or feeling that it has such an inherent value when maybe that's not the case. Maybe how you see the world or feel about the world, it doesn't mean it's because that's just the right way it's supposed to be, that men should be this way, women should be this way, or that, let's say, members of the LGBTQ community, you might have certain feelings that think, no, it's just unnatural or it's right or wrong, um, but recognizing that it's much more complex than that. I've talked about this before, gay marriage, the way that people feel about gay marriage has changed in the United States percentage-wise dramatically, even in just the last decade. 
Has gay marriage changed? No, nothing inherently has changed about that, but how people feel about it changes and how they might even react to it changes. Ask many people 20 years ago, you might get a certain reaction from them that feels automatic, that makes them think this is inherent in whatever we're talking about, and they might feel very differently about it now. So that conversation about language and emotion made me think of some of those themes. Uh, we've reached the end of today's show. Thank you to the callers and the listeners and to Farhuda here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Farhuda Lakwi, Zan Zendegi Azadi. Mm-hmm.